John and his wife Gail have lived on Rideau Valley Drive since 1984. John has been retired from the RCMP for 17 years where he had worked as a civilian member on the computer systems for 30 years. Gail has been a primary school tutor in their home for nearly 30 years. They've been attending Cornerstone since November 2017, and before that they were at Sunnyside Church in the city for 20 years. They have a cottage at Silver Lake Wesleyan Camp where they help out with the camp activities throughout the spring and the summer. And I was just gonna mention, uh, just from myself, I worked with, uh, with Kathy and Mike, uh, their, two of their children at uh, Camp Iowa for a number of years. I uh, got to know them uh, very well, I think, even there were some uh, get-togethers at their house uh, for some camp uh, alumni or while we were working. And also I remember uh, when I was in high school, a good friend of mine, uh, none of his family were Christians. Uh, he became a Christian through the, the youth group at the church uh, where the Ryans and other families were, uh, were attending at the time. And I know that, uh, that that group of people, including their kids, were instrumental in uh, helping him along in, in his faith as well. So anyway, I invite John and let's uh, welcome him this morning. Thank you. So this is new for me and it's going to be very new for you as well. Um, on your way out, on the back table, there is a sheet like this and it's an overview of Revelation. So for you who've ever read Revelation, it's very difficult to see the forest from the trees. And so this outline, which I managed to squeeze onto one page, will help you uh, descend into the forest, uh, look around, and then come out. This is a 30,000-foot view of Revelation, and it will hopefully help you to know at least where whatever you're reading and where it falls into the, 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 the storyline of the whole book. So on the, this side are the chapter outlines with a brief description, and on this side are the, the, uh, the churches, the trumpets, the seals, and the bowls of wrath. Uh, and they fit into the storyline over on this side, and they're, they're in bold. So if you're studying Revelation, you pick one of those up on your way out, and hopefully it will help you. So, uh, before I start, I would let you know that I've read through many documents and commentaries over the last two weeks in preparing this sermon and, and want to acknowledge some of these authors' contributions. Understanding and Applying the Bible by Robertson McQuelkin is one. Cornelius Venema by way of Ligonier Ministries. Dr. L. Pratt, a professor of Old Testament literature uh, at the Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida, and John Gill, an English pastor, biblical scholar and theologian of the 18th century. Also to be acknowledged uh, is an unknown website that furnished me with a scaled-down outline of the chapters of Revelation that I could fit onto one page. All of the 66 books of Revelation is, of all the 66 books of the Bible, Revelation is probably the most difficult to read with understanding. 
Casual reading of this prophetic book will quickly lead us into all kinds of symbols, visions, beasts, and dragons, the stuff of fairy tales. But this is not a fairy tale. Rather, this is apocalyptic literature, the kind found in a couple of other books in the Bible, like Daniel and Ezekiel. In this type of literature, literature, the words we read are a painting, a picture in our minds. The picture itself is not the message. Rather, the interpretation of the picture is the message. The adage that a, a picture is worth a thousand words is true in this case. Only the picture is in our mind. So your normal rules for reading and understanding apocalyptic literature must include the ability to distinguish between what is literal and what is figurative language. As with all scripture, the first principle that guides us in interpretation is that we must read a passage in its simple, direct, and ordinary meaning, unless there are compelling reasons to do otherwise. Some language is obviously figurative, and it would be observed to understand it literally, like the woman of Revelation chapter 12 clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Other figurative language is identified as being so in the text itself. The beast coming out of the sea with seven heads and ten horns, we are told that the ten horns are actually ten kings. Discerning whether a passage is literal or figurative is only one of many factors to consider. We must, as with all types of biblical language, remember that the context of a, of a given package, package passage must always be taken into account. And we should always remember that Scripture will never contradict itself. And in many cases, you can use Scripture to interpret Scripture, which I will show you a little later on. The most challenging issue with this book is determining the timeline in which all these events occur. Are the seals, trumpets, and bowls events happening one after another, or are they three simultaneously moving events dealing with different intensities of the same topic? For this, it is helpful to know the different approaches that previous interpreters have concluded throughout the centuries. There are five general approaches to this. The first is the futurist approach, which regards the events in chapter 4 through 22 as occurring way off in, into the future, immediately prior to Christ's return. The books for you older, for you older folks, the books The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey and the Left Behind series written by Tim LaHaye and Jeffrey Jenkins published in the mid-90s, both portray this approach. While this approach describes the ever-increasing persecution and suffering of God's people and the ultimate triumph of Jesus Christ just prior to his second coming, it has little relevance for the people to whom the book was, the book was originally written. Revelation 1.1 says, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And in the last chapter, chapter 22, verse 6, the same thing is mentioned again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. The next approach is called the pre-terrorist approach and is ex the exact opposite of the futurist 
It regards the events in chapters through through 20 as occurring just prior to the destruction of the temple and the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD and into the first of the early Christian centuries leading up to the 5th century AD. Just as the book's writings were addressed to actual churches in the first century, so the remainder of the book spoke to the members of those churches of events and circumstances that would occur soon. Only chapters 21 and 22 of the events still lying in the future. Preterism properly focuses, as quoted in the two verses just stated in the futurist view, but one could also say the preterist view is irrelevant to the present struggles and persecutions of the modern-day church or its expectations for future, future fulfillment of God's promises. Next is the historicist approach, which reviews Revelation as a visionary symbolization of the sequence of events that will occur throughout the course of, his, of the history of the church, from Christ's first coming until his second coming at the end of the age. These symbols and visions correspond to actual events, institutions, and people that play an important role in the history of the redemption over the last 2,000 years. A well-known illustration of this uh, is the, that during the Protestant Reformations, they identified the harlot Babylon in chapter 7 as the Roman Catholic Church and the Antichrist as the papacy. The rise of Islam as the beast from the sea in chapter 13 is another illustration. Some would argue that the historicist approach is weak in that it reflects a simple chronological sequence of events rather than presentations of the same events from different viewpoints. The fourth view is an idealist approach which differs entirely from the last three and does not identify any events, institutions, or people with the visions and symbols in the book. The idealists would maintain that the letters to the churches and subsequent visions and symbols was originally written to encourage the church in its struggles throughout the entire church age. The last approach, the eclectic interpretation of Revelation, tries to incorporate the best truths identified in all of the previous approaches. While it is admirable to emphasize the strengths of the other approaches, it will have a tendency to offer up different meanings to the same vision, thereby making the vision mean almost anything you would like it to mean. None of these approaches is the silver bullet that will open up the book of Revelation to correct interpretation. But it also does not absolve contemporary readers from the hard task of interpreting the book in exegetically responsible manner. Just ask me, I've been at this for two weeks. Now, uh, a brief overview of chapters 11 to 14, and I'm not sure whether you're reading them this week or you've already read them from last week. Chapter 11 contains the order to measure the temple of God, followed by an account of the two witnesses, their prophesying and the power they demonstrate. Their slaying, their resurrection, and ascension to heaven. Then follows a great quake and the death of 7,000 men and the resulting terror that came upon the rest. The end of chapter 11 marks the completion of the second woe and the sounding of the seventh trumpet, announcing 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. If you're, when you're referring to that chart I was spoken to you about, um, there's a brief, there's an interlude at this point in the, in the overall structure of the book that uh, will give you some background information of what's going on. There's four interludes like that in Revelation. So chapter 12 contains a vision of the two wonders or signs, of two wonders of signs seen in heaven, a woman and a dragon, and what, and what followed thereafter. Then the war in heaven and the great dragon was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. After this follows the dragon's persecution of the woman, and upon making war with the remnant of her seed, those who kept the commandments of God and had the testimony of Jesus. Then we move into chapter 13, which contains a description of the Antichrist under the figure of two beasts, one representing him in his civil power and the other in his spiritual power. The first beast is described by its origin as coming up out of the sea. By its monstrous shape with seven heads and blasphemous names, its ten crowned horns, its skin was like a leopard, its feet like a bear, and its mouth like a lion, having great power, a throne, and great authority. One of its heads was wounded and healed. There was, a great, there were, was great wonder about him and worshipped by all the world, declared to be the most powerful of all, and no one else was like him. Then follows the description of the second beast rising from the earth, its likeness to a lamb with two horns and a dragon for its speech and exercising all the power of the first beast, causing all the inhabitants of the earth to worship the first beast, doing miracles, thereby deceiving the men of the world, commanding them to make an image of the wounded beast, giving life to it so that it could speak, and putting to death all that refused to worship it and demanded that all men have a mark in their right hands or forehead which allowed men to buy or sell. The chapter is concluded with a challenge encouraging men with understanding to, term, to determine the beast's name and number of man consisting of the letters which are numerically 666. Verse 10 of this chapter is the one I will be uh, speaking on uh, as an application for us. Finally, chapter 14 contains three visions. One of the Lamb on Mount Zion, another of three angels preaching against Babylon, and the third of the harvest, and the third of the harvest and divine wrath. The vision of the Lamb is Christ, described by his likeness as a lamb, by the place where he was at, Mount Zion, by his standing with 144,000, his father's name written on their foreheads. Next follows the account of the three angels. The first comes with the everlasting gospel to preach to all men, loudly calling upon all to fear and worship God and give glory to him, since he is the creator of all. And the hour of his judgment is come. Then comes the final harvest and vintage of the earth, the wine press of divine wrath when trodden, the blood comes out as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. 
The verse of scripture which we will use for application is Revelation 13.10. If anyone is destined for captivity, to ta captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. This message is directed to those whose names are written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. And these also, being caught up in the circumstances of this great conflict, will suffer many injustices. Many will be taken captive and many will suffer death, even when they are rightly defending themselves from the cruelty and murders being inflicted upon them in the name of the beast. But in many regards, it's important to note that there is nothing new here, that the persecution and mistreatment of Christ has been going on for the last 2,000 years, and that even today, the intensity of the things described in Revelation are very real in some parts of the world. So we are told that perseverance and faith on our part is required. Perseverance is reminding ourselves that we have, strong, uh, have a strong sovereign that we have a sovereign God who has not lost control in spite of the circumstances. And faith is still the assurance of things hoped for, the things which are not seen. And so one might read into this passage that we're being instructed to just give up blindly and accept our fate. But that is not what per perseverance means. The dictionary definition is to continue in a course of action even in the face of difficulty and with little or no prospect of success. And so the Lord has already said to the first century church in Sperna, back in chapter 2, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. And that's what this verse is saying. Some, uh, cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death again, being killed. In our, in our verse of application. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, and this is where the perseverance and faith of the saints comes in. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And so perseverance and faith is the act of overcoming in the message not only through the church at Smyrna, but to the other six churches as well. The directive, therefore, as opposed to giving up and blindly accepting our faith, is to persevere with faith. And this we shall do by reminding ourselves from where we have come and what our final destiny will be. The grand plan of God for the whole of the history of, the, of time is laid out in the book of Ephesians. The things that were determined by God before the foundation of the world 
and will come to pass because of his sovereign will. The first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 1 is the outline of this plan. Beginning at verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Continuing in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And completed in 9 and 10, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he proposed in Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, which is the conclusion of the plan as revealed in the book of Revelation. The immediate consequences for the outcome respects to this, to, as far as ourselves are concerned, is verse 11, we will obtain an inheritance, and verse 13, we are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is an overview of his grand plan, and of course, the book of Revelation is painting a picture of the final days of the fulfillment of that plan. The summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. The details of the plan are then worked out through the remainder of Ephesians with Paul's admonishment into the, in the final chapter that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. A perfect picture of what is happening in Revelation. And so going back to Ephesians chapter 2, it is there revealed how we are drawn into this great plan by the Father himself. In verse 1 it states, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And in verse 5 it says, But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Verse 7. This is a description of our spiritual re resurrection, the first resurrection, of being made alive and being raised up, the rebirth of our spirit, and it echoes the passages in John chapter 3 where it tells us that we must be born again. And also in Romans chapter 6, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection." And once more, we have the scene played out in Revelation chapter 20, which you haven't got to yet, starting at verse 4. It states, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on him. This is the scene that we just read from Ephesians chapter 2 about being raised up and seated with Christ. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. 
And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Christian people, this is true of us. This is our spiritual resurrection. This is the first re- <coughs> This is the first resurrection the scriptures are talking about. And because we have been born again, then the second death will have no power over us because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is what Paul means when he said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus has been raising his saints to life, for 2,000 years now. For he said in John chapter 5, while he was still on earth, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This is how we overcome, by reminding ourselves of how we got to be where we are and reminding ourselves of the final outcome that will be true of us. And we must continue to do this in perseverance and faith. We must preach the gospel to ourselves. The seven churches in Revelation were told of the results of their overcoming. Ephesians To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Smyrna, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Pergamum, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Thyatira, he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, To him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I have also received authority from my father. I will give him the morning star. Sardis, he who overcomes, will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Philadelphia, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Laodicea, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That is the application of Revelation 13.10. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. 
So in conclusion, I would like to pray Paul's prayer from Ephesians chapter 1. Let us pray. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists in Cornerstone, and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward you who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen and amen. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace.